Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the alternative universe the Russian people are in when it comes to what they are told is happening next door in Ukraine, as state media propagandists are now working overtime to portray news of the massacres of civilians by Russian soldiers as fake news, going so far as to suggest that because the town of Butcher sounds like the English word butcher, the massacre was the work of the British. Joining us is Julia Davis, an expert on the Russian media who watches between six and eight hours of it every day. A Russian media analyst, she specializes in exposing Russian propaganda tactics with a focus on the Kremlin's hybrid warfare and foreign policy. She is a former federal officer who served with the Department of Homeland Security and is currently a columnist for the Daily Beast, where her latest article is Putin's Minions Demand Grotesque Rewards for Mass Killers. Then we'll examine further how propaganda is working on the Russian people, most of whom believe Putin's big lie he is liberating Ukrainians from the Nazis, which is not dissimilar from most Republicans believing Donald Trump's big lie that he won the last election. However, Russian propaganda is now taking a sinister turn from originally it was just the government of so-called Nazis that needed to be purged, but because the Ukrainians are putting up such a strong resistance, now it's the whole population that needs to be denazified, which leads to the specter of genocide. Joining us is David Kay a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, who from 2014 to 2020 was the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. He's the author of Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet, and his work addresses, among other topics, the ways in which artificial intelligence technologies implicate human rights issues, the global private surveillance industry and its impact on freedom of expression, and growing repression of freedom of expression globally. Then finally, we'll look into the upcoming Senate vote to confirm Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court and the continuing smears against her by white Southern senators, with Senator Cotton suggesting that if she were a judge on the Nuremberg Tribunal, she would be defending the Nazis. Joining us is Garrett Epps, a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon. He's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution, and we will discuss his latest article at the Washington Monthly, Katanji Brown-Jackson was a public defender. Here's why that's a great thing. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now, Julia Davis, a Russian media analyst who specializes in exposing Russian propaganda tactics with a focus on the Kremlin's hybrid warfare and foreign policy. A former federal officer serving with the Department of Homeland Security, she's currently a columnist for the Daily Beast, where her latest article is Putin's Minions Demand Grotesque Rewards for Mass Killers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Julia Davis. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Julia. And uh, I just watched an interview that you did uh, on CNN today, and it mentioned that you watch between six and eight hours of Russian television per day. Is that right? That's correct. If I'm not watching it, it's usually playing in the background. And if I'm traveling, it's playing on my phone. And uh, that way I can uh, stay on top of it, yes. So what's the latest then? How are they dealing with the revelations that are going around the world of the Russian atrocities in the town of Bucha, outside of Kiev? You would think that the satellite confirmation about the, the corpses appearing on the streets during a time that the Russians were in full control of the city, you would think that would be enough for them to admit the truth or at least say they would be looking into it, but no, they went straight to deny it. They've accused the West to of uh, funding this so-called provocation. They just outright called it fake. They have come up with most ridiculous stories claiming that those corpses are moving or walking away, that those are just crisis actors, that it's all a, a fake production. They have... Um, outright dismissed the satellite investigation without even explaining how it's supposedly a fake, which uh, there's really no way to dispute something like that. So they have just slapped the little stamp that says fake over the screen when they show it, and they just dismiss it as a fake without even explaining it. They have really been floundering, but continuing to lie with a straight face that Nothing happened, and anyone that was killed was killed by the Ukrainians and not by the Russian troops. So do you have any idea of what percentage of the Russian people believe what they see? I mean, they don't have any choice in the media. It's almost all state-controlled. And the last newspaper that Putin didn't control, Novaya Gazeta, is now shut down. So it's uh, he's got the whole media um, under his thumb. But... Is it true that he's more popular than ever, that the Russians are behind this war? They're all, because they're, they're fed a complete diet of lies, that some people have suggested it's like how the American media was during the initial invasion of Iraq and during the shock and awe and the toppling of Saddam's statue. Everybody was cheering on. Is, is that what's happening in Russia today? Unfortunately, propaganda works, but you also have to keep in mind that there's no way to accurately uh, poll people in a, an authoritarian regime because some of them might simply claim to support it just to be left alone and not to be fined or imprisoned or persecuted in any other way. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. Also keep in mind that a lot of Russians are using VPNs to circumvent the blocks that have been placed on their access to social media and the Internet. So you can safely assume that those who want to know the truth still have a way of finding it. 
it's not quite like uh, North Korea or China. They definitely still have plenty of access. So there are a lot of people within Russia that know the truth of what's uh, truly happening. Unfortunately, there are also a lot of those that are totally brainwashed by the propaganda and blindly support this war. Their state media has become very overt lately in advocating that Ukraine shouldn't even exist, that Ukrainian nationality is a fake construct, that there shouldn't be Ukrainian language, shouldn't be uh, Ukrainian people. Basically, very genocidal in their approach towards Ukraine. And unfortunately, there are plenty of Russians that are siding with that view because for years now they have been brainwashed to believe that Ukrainians are just the Nazis and need to be crushed. And then all that will be left there are pro-Russia Ukrainians who will no longer even be called Ukrainians, but just basically be the Russians and the country will cease to exist. Unfortunately, a lot of them are okay with it, and that's chilling, to say the least. And again, I'm speaking with Julia Davis, who's a Russian media analyst who specializes in exposing Russian propaganda tactics with a focus on the Kremlin's hybrid warfare and foreign policy. A former federal officer serving with the Department of Homeland Security, she's currently a columnist for the Daily Beast, where her latest article is Putin's Minions Demand Grotesque Rewards for Mass Killers. So tell us about what's going on here with Putin's propagandists now pushing for pay raises and debt forgiveness for those involved in in these atrocities in uh, Ukraine? They're very skilled liars, and so instead of ever admitting any wrongdoing, which is characteristic of Putin's Russia, who, which has never admitted for any wrongdoing from the Malaysian airliner to the regime's atrocities in Chechnya in, or in Syria, everything they do, they always cover up and they double down on their denials, they're doing the same in approaching the atrocities in Ukraine. They are actually advocating, rewarding their murderous, looting troops. None of the footage of the Russians that are robbing and looting Ukrainian homes and shipping the, the goods that they have stolen from Ukrainian homes um, to Russia None of that has even been addressed in the Russian state media. Instead, they're portraying their troops as heroes and advocating for pay raises. And they're also asking that their consumer debt be erased as a reward for doing such a great job, which is they're calling it defending Russia. And that is com completely absurd because they're, they've invaded another country. So they're by no means defending Russia. They're offending and um, assaulting Ukraine and murdering civilians, but are facing absolutely no accountability and no calls for accountability. But my understanding is that they brought in mobile crematoriums into Belarus where they're getting rid of all of the bodies of the dead soldiers. So is there anything in the Russian media about the casualties? They're lying about the casualties as they usually do. So far, they, they're only admitting to losing approximately 1,000 soldiers. 
which is uh, a far cry from the true casualties that they have experienced that are growing exponentially. And uh, also in um, 2021, there has been a change in the roles of uh, mass burial that Russia had adopted that had come in force as of uh, February of this year, just in time for this invasion. So they've been preparing for this because uh, mobile crematoriums don't always work or they require fuel. There is a lot of technological things that have to do with it. So they have been preparing for mass uh, burials, for mass casualties for quite some time now. And it is um, chilling that we're witnessing this unfold in in this day and age. But um, they are completely unconcerned for um, human lives. And that has to do not only with the country they're invading, but also their own troops who they're just willing to disregard and lie about in order to not look as uh, failing on such a massive scale and what they initially said would take them minutes or mere days. And now they're saying it might take them 30 or 40 years to fully subdue Ukraine in light of the kind of resistance that they're experiencing. But just to finish up on the casualties, my understanding is that they're cremating the remains. A lot of the remains are just still scattered in the fields of Ukraine, but those that have been retrieved, they take them to Belarus, cremate them there or bury them there. So what do, what do the Russian parents find out? Their sons have just disappeared? I mean, what's the cover story that they're offering up to the families? I'm not sure that they're even bothering with the cover story. They have uh, imposed such draconian legislation prohibiting the Russians from discussing this war, even calling it a war. And I suspect that the parents would be intimidated into remaining silent no matter what happens and no matter how long they have to wait to find out what happened to their loved ones. So I'm sure there's discontent that is brewing there, but people are so terrorized by Putin's brutal regime it's hard to predict whether it will have any impact, even if those parents even thought about speaking out. So when you mentioned a little while ago, Julia Davis, about Russians talk, saying that this war could go on for 20 or 30 years or 40 years, this is where I think it gets quite alarming. Initially, the Russian claim was that the country was led by Nazis, even though Zelensky himself is Jewish and his family were murdered by the Nazis in World War Two, They basically said the, the government were Nazis and they had to denazify the country. But now because of the resistance, aren't they now saying essentially that the Ukrainian people are Nazis and that they have to cleanse the whole country? What, what's the latest propaganda twist in Russian media? A current uh, state media coverage says that they're shocked about how many Ukrainians have turned out to be Nazis. And then they clarify that even though the Ukrainians don't overtly show any Nazi views, but they want to be Western aligned. And so therefore, that is the modern equivalent of being Nazis. Basically, they're arguing that because Ukrainians don't want to align with Russia, but want to be free, 
and want to be aligned with the West, that is their new definition of what being a Nazi really means. And therefore, anyone who wants to be free will need to be either cleansed in the worst way, like we've seen in Bucha, or be submitted to forced labor, be sent to filtration camps, re-education camps, and that's what they mean when they're talking about decades and multiple generations of Ukrainians that they would have to, quote-unquote, re-educate in this brutal way to submit to Russia's rule. So this would indicate then that that the Kremlin is preparing the Russian people for a long war, talk of peace talks and of settling uh, some kind of compromise with Ukraine becoming neutral and Russia ending up with the Donbass and Crimea. That None of that is being discussed, right? Are you left with the impression, since you studied between six and eight hours of Russian state media per day, are you left with the impression that the Russian people are being prepared for a long war? Yes, the Russian people are being prepared for a long war. Uh, I don't know how they're planning on funding it since uh, Russia is being crushed by the Western sanctions and more of them are underway in light of the Bucha massacre. But that's what they're arguing, that so many Ukrainians supposedly turned out to be Nazis that now it will take decades and being the patriots that they are, they should be willing to pay any price and uh, hang in there for an indefinite time period, however long it takes to get rid of the quote-unquote Nazi Ukrainians, meaning simply any Ukrainians who want to be free. Has this always been in the, the DNA of the Russians? I don't understand why how they could buy this idea that this country next door is such a threat to them. I mean, they basically have arguing all along that Ukraine is the puppet of the West. So how are they explaining how the Ukrainians are defending their country? And they're not coming up with a lie that NATO soldiers are in the fight. That's a lie too far, isn't it? I mean, obviously there's no evidence of it, but evidence doesn't matter. So how are they explaining why... This country of 44 million is essentially defeating a country of 150 million. They're claiming that uh, NATO and the West are egging on Ukrainians to put up this resistance, and that's why the West is arming them. And they essentially are saying, we're not fighting Ukraine here, we're fighting the West in general, and we can't afford to lose because if we lose, there will be no more Russia. But if we win, that means we've defeated not just Ukraine, but the United States. That is the way they're presenting the situation. And that this is essentially, all along, they basically suggested that this is American aggression. I mean, that seems to have been, from day one, that they blamed America. Yes, they have been blaming America, which is their standard boogeyman for anything that uh, happens to them, for example, whenever they're hit with sanctions, they never expressly say why, because it's always tied to their own behavior, but instead they're saying it's only because the United States see Russia as such a worthy opponent and a competitor that they're trying to stymie our growth. 
and whether or not we would have invaded Ukraine, they would impose the same kinds of sanctions. It's a, an obvious lie to anyone with critical thinking. So many Russians do understand that the sanctions are directly tied to what Russia has chosen to do, led by Putin. But this is the way they're presenting it to anyone that is willing to believe them. And there's a lot of people in Russia that believe it. So just, just in the last couple of minutes, then, is it possible that Putin can hang on for a long time, that Russia will hunker down, that they'll endure the hardships just as they did in World War II? They essentially have brought back Joseph Stalin as they, the great leader during the Great Patriotic War, and now Vladimir Putin is the great leader in the new patriotic war against the uh, Americans and the West, and we'll suffer sacrifice, but in the end, we won't bow to the imperialists. Is that the narrative? That is the narrative, although, of course, things are so different. They were on the right side of history in the, the great patriotic war, and here they are, the invaders, and also instead of the land lease from the West, this time they're being crushed by the West, which is has been trying to talk them into not invading in the first place. So things are so drastically different. And even the Kremlin propagandists are alarmed of what will be the reaction of the people over the next months um, when the sanctions will really start to bite. So um, I anticipate that things might start unraveling in the, the coming months as people might... Uh, be awakened by the real realization of the dire situation that they're in because of the course chosen by Putin. Well, Julia Davis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure being with you. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again, Julia. And again, I've been speaking with Julia Davis, a Russian media analyst who specializes in exposing Russian propaganda tactics with a focus on the Kremlin's hybrid warfare and foreign policy. She's a former federal officer serving with the Department of Homeland Security, and she's currently a columnist for the Daily Beast, where her latest article is Putin's minions demand grotesque rewards for mass killers. We can take a brief station break. We're back examining further how propaganda is working on the Russian people, most of whom believe Putin's big lie that he is liberating Ukraine from the Nazis. Германия продолжает наступать. Пенок на праздный дождь старания трудно братанами воевать. Ой, эх, 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 наложили проклятым немцу здорово. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Kay, a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, who from 2014 to 2020 was the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. He's the author of Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet, and his work addresses, among other topics, the ways in which artificial intelligence technologies implicate human rights issues the global private surveillance industry and its impact on freedom of expression and growing repression of freedom of expression globally. Welcome to Background Briefing, 
David Kay. Thanks for inviting me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And what seems to be going on now, particularly in Russia, where the Russian state media is ubiquitous and... In fact, as far as I can tell, what's happening in Russia is similar to what happened here in the United States with that early euphoria over the shock and awe of great victory in Iraq, which later turned sour. But at the time of the toppling of Saddam Satchu, uh, most of the American media and the most American people were cheering on the, the war. And it seems to be a similar situation now in Russia. And now that we've had these reports of these atrocities in the outskirts of Kiev, the propagandists are working overtime. So it's not a question of free speech so much as propaganda. So how do you deal with propaganda in terms of what legal ramifications there are? Is there any kind of... It's not in the uh, the laws of war so much, but in a way, as much as you want to put Putin on trial... I think you also really need to put Putin's propagandists on trial, do you not? <clears throat> yeah, that's that's right. I mean, although, you know, I would say that um, there there are some pretty significant differences between, uh, you know, the U.S. invasion uh, of Iraq and uh, and the current situation. Although, you know, that the U.S. invasion was also kind of whipped up by by lies and um, and disinformation. Around weapons of mass destruction and so forth, and then afterwards, as you as you note, there was a you know a kind of a cheerleading section in the media for for the U.S. action. But but I think that the difference that we're seeing right now, at least within Russia itself, is that you know Russia has imposed a kind of draconian censorship that you know in Russia hasn't been seen since the Soviet era. You know even. You know, not even in the 80s, in the time of Glasnost and, and Perestroika. I mean, this is some very, very serious clamping down on independent media. You know, even the use of the term war can you know, lead one to be uh, prosecuted uh, and arrested and then prosecuted by the government. And what, so what you have are, are kind of two things at the same time. On the one hand, you have the government criminalizing independent reporting and you have the government filling the resulting space with propaganda and that you know that of course leads to a place where you know the the viewing audience the you know citizens of Russia are only getting you know one story and the story they're getting is also full of lies i mean they're they're told that the massacres in ukraine for example were either set up by crisis actors or you know, they were committed by Ukraine itself. So, so there's, you know, it's a combination of censorship and propaganda. And propaganda is not per se illegal under international law. And so there, you know, there are a lot of uh, kind of complications as to how we address it, but it's particularly hard in an environment like Russia where, you know, it's, there's the criminalization on the one hand and the disinformation on the other. Well, at this point, Ukrainian authorities are investigating almost 4,500 alleged Russian war crimes. So the weight of evidence is growing all the time. And I guess if we're learning so much horror happened just in the areas around Kiev that were uh, where the Russians evacuated, imagine what's going on in the rest of the country. It's, it's, it's really frightening. Um, 
And, you know, people shouldn't be under the impression that because the Russian army has moved away from Kyiv, that, that it's over. I mean, there's continuing shelling and almost certainly war crimes taking place across the country. And so, yeah, we're, we're in a situation where, you know, there's there are you know, a variety of international mechanisms that are being set up to, to approach the problem uh, of holding, you know, Russians accountable for all of these crimes. Um, but there's there's no mechanism right now to actually stop it other than Ukrainian resistance on the ground. So one of the more alarming things that's happening in the Russian media now is that initially, of course, the propaganda said that we were we had to go in to f- liberate the Ukrainian people from the Nazi government, that we had to denazify the country. And this case was made that even though Zelensky is Jewish, that the government of uh, in Kiev were Nazis. They didn't really blame the people so much as the government. But now it's extending beyond the government. They're effectively, the Russian propagandists now, are blaming the people. And that's their response to the resistance that the Ukrainian army has shown. So now the propagandists are saying that because we haven't conquered the place yet and they're resisting, that means that the entire population are a bunch of Nazis. I mean, this starts to take you into the territory of genocide, does it not? Well, yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the entire narrative that's being constructed out of Moscow is, yeah, of, of real grave concern. I mean, the, the, you know, w- when you think back to the argument that, you know, Putin made, although it's less an argument than just a, kind of a, a set of disinformation narratives, that he made at the beginning was, you know, Russia and Ukraine are actually one people. Ukraine doesn't exist as a country and all of this. And, you know, look what's happening now. You know, re- Ukrainians are resisting. You know, they're uh, sort of the attack has in, in many ways reinforced their national identity. And that makes all of these, you know, sort of moves by by the Russian army to both target civilians, um, you know, not just in the sense of uh, of dropping bombs on particular, you know, housing blocks and so forth, but of actually murdering people, you know, essentially executing individuals on the street. And we've seen so many of these terrible images over the last several days. But yeah, I mean, it, it is looking more and more like targeting a particular nation as opposed to a kind of generic civilian population. And that's um, that's it's really quite frightening uh, and and really devastating to, you know, thousands and upon thousands, if not hundreds of thousands and millions of lives in Ukraine. And again, I'm speaking with David Kay, who's a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, who from 2014 to 2020 was the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of, sp- of opinion and expression. He's the author of Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet, and his work addresses, among other topics, the ways in which artificial intelligence technologies implicate human rights issues, the global private surveillance industry, and its impact on freedom of expression, and growing repression of freedom of expression globally. So just to provide some context of uh, what we're just talking about, the possibility now that, that Russian propaganda is now suggesting that it's not just the government of Ukraine that are Nazis, it's the whole 
country is uh, are Nazis and they have to be purged uh, and it'll be a long war and and we're heading into the kind of notion of genocide which is what the president Zelensky has accused the Russians of being intent on an op-ed was published Sunday in the Russian state outlet that Ray Novotsky by Timofey Sergeyev and it basically makes the entire Ukrainian population complicit in Nazism. And he's calling for a generation-long occupation of the country and the liquidation of the Ukrainian state and its political elites and consigning them all to forced labor for any accomplices of the Kiev regime. And just to quote the article, denazification is necessary when a significant part of the people, most likely the majority, have been mastered and drawn into the Nazi regime in its politics. That is when the hypothesis, the people are good, the government is bad, does not work. And then in an interview with a new statesman, of influential Russian political theorist, Sergei Karaganov argued that the conflict in Ukraine was now existential for Russia as it is a proxy war with the entirety of the West and Russia cannot afford to lose. So we'll need a kind of victory and if there is a sense that we are losing the war, then I think there is a definite possibility of escalation. So this is getting darker and darker, is it not, David? Uh, it absolutely is. I mean, I'm not sure I have much to add in terms of uh, just the the darkness that you just that you just described, um, in in part because I'm not a, a Russia or Ukraine uh, expert in particular. But but I would say that you know this this whole idea of you know articulating the situation in the country and articulating the aims of the government or of the government of Russia around you know essentially claiming any kind of victory that they can because I, I read that interview in the New Statesman as well and it's it was really shocking in its basic premise that you know the the russians need a victory of some sort whatever that might be and it is an an entire narrative around the importance of a a unique and uniquely powerful russia uh, around uh, sort of the idea of the west being an enemy and that ukraine had been a part of that kind of a aggressive attitude toward russia they're creating this entire narrative that also feeds into and informs the propaganda that we're seeing across Russia, within Russia, and you see that you know they're trying to bring that propaganda outside the the country as well. Although that's it's a little bit harder for them to do right now, given the restrictions on state media outside of Russia right now. But I think all of these things are put together. I mean, are, are working together in tandem. The these uh, you know these very um, kind of martial statements by Russian leaders and thinkers and you know the resulting propaganda that comes from it these are these are all working in in a similar direction so just in the last couple of minutes then let's talk about the use of the internet or the clamping down on the internet in Russia to the point where only as you mentioned earlier if you use the word war you can be arrested and get 15 years in jail is there anything that can be done to penetrate that wall well, it's a good question. I mean, my understanding is that YouTube is still available. 
So there is at least some access uh, for people, although that can be very risky because as popular as YouTube is, um, Russia has a very sophisticated surveillance network. And, you know, people who are who are using these kinds of tools are often taking a certain kind of risk in um you know, being identified as somebody who's trying to learn the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. Um, but, you know, apart from that, you know, the, this, you know, very, very deep censorship makes it very difficult for people to get outside information. The one possibility that they've had or that many have had for some time is the use of VPNs, virtual private networks that are basically apps on your devices that allow you to circumvent the restrictions and get access to web servers that are hosted outside of Russia. And, um, you know, there's been a real crackdown by the government on the use of VPNs. So there's just a, a kind of a, a full offensive against truthful information and independent reporting in Russia. And that's making it extremely hard for people to get get real information. And, you know, the other point to say is that, you know, with the extent of the propaganda in the country, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't looking for different sources of information. And, um, you know, that's that's a part of that's what propaganda is designed to do as well, to basically tamp down even your curiosity and learning the truth. Well, David Kay, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Kay, who's a clinical professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, who from 2014 to 2020 was the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of the right to freedom of opinion and expression. He's the author of Speech Police, The Global Struggle to Govern the Internet, and his work addresses, among other topics, the ways in which artificial intelligence technologies implicate human rights issues, the global private surveillance industry, and its impact on freedom of expression and growing repression of freedom of expression globally. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the upcoming Senate vote to confirm Katanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court and the continuing smears against her by white Southern senators, with Senator Cotton suggesting that if she were a judge on the Nuremberg Tribunal, she would be defending the Nazis. Mother, should I trust the government? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Garrett Epps, a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon. He's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is, Katanji Brown Jackson was a public defender. Here's why that's a great thing. Welcome to Background Briefing, Garrett Epps. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Garrett. And we all witnessed the hearings uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee that were just absolutely disgusting, the way the Republicans tried to smear this incredibly accomplished African-American woman who you know, was able to parry all of these horrible attacks 
But the, the smearing hasn't stopped. I mean, Senator Tom Cotton just said, I'll quote, You know, the last Judge Jackson left the Supreme Court to go to Nuremberg and prosecute the Nazis. He was referring, of course, to Robert Jackson, who was appointed by President Harry Truman and who was one of the lead prosecutors of these German war criminals. And then Cotton went on to say, this Judge Jackson might have gone there to defend them. So, you know, when you think about Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, speaking in a virtual conference to the UN Security Council yesterday, saying that what's happening to his country with, this, with these Russian war crimes being conducted, that he compared the Russians to the Nazis, and he called for a Nuremberg type of tribunal to hold the Russians to account. So here you have a United States senator, instead of focusing on that issue, which is so critical today, here he is smearing the first African-American woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court. Well, you know, there there's two parts of that, Ian, and, and the first one I have to say uh, which, of course, you know, no, we, we very seldom enunciate, but it's in the room, is that I don't think Cotton or Cruz or Hawley or, or uh, Graham would speak that way. Uh, I'm not saying they wouldn't oppose a different nominee, but I don't think they would speak that way about a nominee who was not a black woman. I think that there is in the mind of some people, many of them Southern, where I grew up in the South, uh, you know, the idea that having to listen while a black woman talks is such an indignity that they are enraged by it. And they feel that 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 the ability to do absolutely anything uh, is theirs by right. Right. That's the first thing. But the second thing I would say is, you know, there were people who went to Nuremberg to defend the Nazis. Uh, the Nazis had, you know, the best defense that the allies could provide uh, and what what's wrong with that? Did we want to just, you know, Ch Churchill wanted to just put the Nazi leaders up against the wall and shoot them with no uh, due process. But but the uh, allies together insisted on establishing this principle, which is that there is an international law of human rights and international law of war, but also that it is only enforced through procedures that civilized countries follow. And that includes having an independent counsel uh, who will make sure that the tribunal follows its own rules. What's wrong with that? Uh, I know people who have gone to, uh, you know, the International Criminal Court or the Court for the Crimes of Former Yugoslavia in order to do the same thing. Uh, we're, we have to be able to give people accused of crimes counsel. Uh, otherwise, it's not a system of law. So let's talk a little about your article at the Washington Monthly. Katanji Brown-Jackson was a public defender. Here's why that's a great thing. And I, I think the final vote in the full Senate will take place on Thursday. I'm not sure about that, but it looks as if that's where we're heading. It came out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. What was a 50-50 vote, wasn't it, Garrett? Uh, I think 11 to 11. Yeah, 11 to 11, that's, that's what I mean. Membership. Yeah, yeah. 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 So nobody broke ranks there, but there's an expectation, isn't, isn't there, that Senator Susan Collins, I think she's already said she's going to vote for a, a Mikowski and Mitt Romney. They're going to vote for we've her. Had, we've had statements from the, those three, so we're looking at 53-47. I, uh, I don't see, 
any prospect of more Republicans joining. Um, you know, if you want to look at someone who blows with the wind, Senator Sass of Nebraska, uh, who likes to pose as a kind of thoughtful moderate, has thrown himself in with Hawley and Cruz and Cotton. Uh, so that's a that's a sign uh, that that not much uh, rank breaking is going to happen, despite the fact that the polls show that this is the most popular Supreme Court nomination in history or in the period of time that polling has been conducted. Wow, I didn't realize that. And I, and I understand why, because, you know, the more they attacked her, the more dignified she was. I mean, you know, she's sort of the best representative of African-American community you could possibly have, surely. Could, could you have could you have done that? Could you have sat still? I sure couldn't. No. You know, I would have at some point the temptation to just say, look, you're being an idiot uh, would would just become overwhelming. And of course, that's the game. Mm. We want to taunt you and bait you and, and try to make you make a mistake. And, uh, you know, the air that she had and, of course, the remarks that Senator Booker uh, made, you know, underline this is like. Yeah, bring it on. We're used to this. We're used to this. This is the way we are treated all the time. You're not going to throw me off my game. Right. And and I thought it was just astonishing and, and so inspiring to watch. So let's talk about your personal experience here in as much as you can identify to some extent with Katanji Brown-Jackson. You worked briefly for the Federal Public Defender Service you were, uh, I think, in your law school in the summer break, and you were in the the Federal Public Defender's Office down in Albuquerque. But it came back to bite you because a few years later, in the legislature in Oregon, the Republicans used your having worked for the Federal Public Defenders as an excuse to block your appointment to a justice commission. So tell us what happened. Well, the first thing that has to be said is that that was the best job I've just about ever had. And I've never worked with better lawyers. I've never known better lawyers. I've never learned more in a short period of time than I learned in those few weeks in the Federal Public Defender Office. And so, you know, I kind of felt uh, in, in 1995 when, when the governor of Oregon named me to his uh, Criminal Justice Commission, I, I kind of felt that I brought something to the table, that I really knew something about this subject matter. Um, the... Uh, the Republican uh, majority in the Senate, however, announced that they opposed me, although they didn't get my name right when they did that. They, they announced they were opposing someone named George Epps. Um, uh, George is, is my legal name, uh, but, you know, George Epps was my Uncle George, who uh, ran the card game at the Elks Club for about 50 years and was long dead by that time. So really the only thing they had that they could focus on was that I had been a federal public defender. And so they, they, they asked me, you know, how many technicalities had I used to get uh, guilty people off? And I said, well, you know, I don't recall any technicalities. I do recall defending uh, two individuals or helping defend two individuals who were both innocent as the day is long and should never have been prosecuted and without a, a good defense would have been headed to prison um, and so the next question was, well, uh, have you, you know, as far as the death penalty, have you ever known someone who was executed to commit another crime after being executed? And that one was kind of hard for me to answer. I probably got a little grouchy about it. Um, 
And, and, you know, the idea that being a defense lawyer taints you, it's a contaminant, it, it makes you evil or bad, uh, is one that's very uh, present in our society. And I think that, you know, shows like Law and Order, you know, kind of spread this, uh, this notion. Um, and I, I think that, you know, we haven't had anyone on the court who really had seen the power of the state arrayed against an individual defendant uh, on a regular basis since the death of Thur the departure of Thurgood Marshall in 1991. And I think it's, uh, you know, you read the stuff that the justices write about criminal justice and you want to, you just want to hide. It's, it's embarrassing. You, 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 you people don't know anything about it. And I think that uh, Jackson coming on the court brings more than just a vote, right? You know, the idea is like Breyer out, Jackson in, six to three, nothing changes. Uh, I don't think the court works that way. And I think having somebody in that conference room who knows what it's like to deal with a client who is facing the power of the federal government uh, will, will make, not only will make her a more effective justice, it will make the court better. So uh, the whole opposition to her was, was not only mean-spirited, it was totally wrong-headed. And as the court, as you mentioned, the six to three conservative majority, or arguably ultra-conservative majority, or five of the six all appointed by one person with the Federalist Society, one Leonard Leo, which I find extraordinary that this Opus Dei character can handpick all of these people. But no, that aside, in terms of the makeup of the of the conservatives uh, or the court itself, there are two that were prosecutors, federal prosecutors. Uh, that's Sotomayor and uh, she, Alita, right? She was a state. She was a state prosecutor. Ian. Yeah. Uh, Alita but then was the a, others, a federal prosecutor. Yeah. Right. But then Go the ahead. others were corporate lawyers, were they not? Well, yes. Um, uh, although uh, basically. Uh, John John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, in particular, have spent most of their careers serving the president of the United States, enhancing his power and his authority. Interestingly enough, Kavanaugh uh, was involved in prosecution, but there was only one defendant that he was at all interested in prosecuting, and that was uh, President Clinton when he worked with Ken Starr to try to bring uh, uh, down the Clinton administration. But nonetheless, Kavanaugh is beginning to show a little, uh, he, he is showing, let me put it that way, a little sensitivity to the, the problems of uh, uh, too much power on the part of police and prosecutors. And I think that having someone at the table, you know, who can echo that back and, you, you know, we see her style, right? She's not going to come in and slap people around. Uh, I think she's, she's very persuasive and very... Uh, uh, impressive, and, and that she will bear witness to things that you only see when you are on that side of the courtroom, uh, when you, you only see how absolutely determined people in government are to impose their will on ordinary people to the point that guilt or innocence almost becomes irrelevant if you're on that side of the table, if your job is to stand between those uh, defendants and the government, you really see what is scary to people about the law and what 
what we really should be working, all of us, this is not a liberal conservative issue, this, all of us should be working to make the law work better. And her uh, work on the Sentencing Commission was precisely that kind of bipartisan work that is necessary as we try to recover uh, from the hangover of mass incarceration. We're trying to move to something different. And the, the kind of insistence by the Republicans on the uh, Judiciary Committee that any, uh, any move that, that reduces sentences or any move that provides counsel to criminal defendants is, uh, is softness on crime, is, is favorableness to crime. Uh, I've seen, you know, I've seen Judge Jackson called a pedophile now by the, by the right-wing bots on Twitter. Uh, this is damaging. It's damaging. Uh, it doesn't damage her. You know, as, as Senator Booker, Booker said, God's got her, uh, but it damages uh, the country. It reinforces these, these beliefs in people that, unfortunately, they all too often only lose when they themselves become the target uh, of an enraged government. Well, it is, uh, as I say, one of the ugliest and most dismal things I've ever watched on television. And the Republican Party, apart from their outrageous anti-democratic push underway to become a one-party state by ma massive voter suppression underway, which, frankly, the Democrats seem to be absolutely like a deer in the headlights. They don't seem to recognize how comprehensive it is, what, what they're doing. They're doing it at the, at the state level and they're doing it at the county level with getting onto these canvassing boards. Almost all the canvassing boards now in Michigan, uh, they put these crazy stop to steal people on these boards. We're heading into a situation where we, we're going to be like Orban's hungry before we know it. And the Republicans are just have turned into a party of trolls and culture warriors the last thing they well, want to talk about is anything serious. They don't have any policies. They don't have any plans. They don't have any programs. It's absolutely astounding. Well, I, don't, I don't disagree with that, Ian, but I would say one thing. The Republicans do have one program, and it is what I would call, you know, uh, the last stage of the Southern strategy. What, you're, what we're seeing, you know, that, that program is to keep power in the hands of white people and to, to reinstate as much as possible uh, of the old dual system in which black people had fewer rights than, than anyone else. And the parallels between what's going on now and what went on between 1895 and 1910 in the South, uh, when what was called redemption was completed and black people were deprived of the right to vote, they were deprived of, of due process, they were deprived of the right to participate in the economy. The parallels, uh, as I as said before, I grew up in the South, I know this history, and the parallels just make the hair stand up on the back of my head. They're, they're so, uh, it's, it, it is as if for these people, nothing has changed. Uh, and we are gonna go back, we're gonna go all the way back. We're not gonna allow you to talk about race, we're not gonna let you vote, we're not gonna have open debate, uh, we are going back to white rule. Uh, and I don't think, I think people who say that that's an exaggeration um, are really dreaming. You know, that, that virus is in our blood and it's flaring up again. 
And you have to add to a second layer to this virus, and that is uh, not just going after African Americans and turning the clock back to Jim Crow and defending white supremacy, uh, which is what Cruz and Graham and Mike Lee and Tom Cotton and Marsha Blackburn and Josh Hawley were doing. The other thing that they're doing now, of course, not just beating up on African Americans, they're beating up on gays as well. That's become front and center in their strategy. So this is an attack on minorities across the board underway. So just in closing, though, we talked about the the likely vote with at least a couple of decent Republicans, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney. There are three Republican senators that are retiring, aren't there? Any chance of any of them showing some decency? They've got nothing to lose. Well, you know, we haven't seen much of that, uh, you know, from people like, like uh, Jeff Flake and so forth. They, they got out of the kitchen, but they didn't really leave behind, uh, you know, much legacy of courage when, when going up against the Trump wing. Um, I, I just don't I, I think the, the pull of the far right is so extensive. Uh, in the Supreme Court, I mean, in the in in American politics now, that people who don't have extraordinary uh, personal security and 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 belief in themselves have no power to resist. They're just being carried further and further and further to the right. Uh, and I I don't know where it ends. I don't know what the limitation of this is. Well, Garrett Epps, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Uh, always fun, Ian. Talk to you soon, I hope. Thanks again, and I've been speaking with Garrett Epps, who's a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly. He has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon, and he's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution, and his latest article the Washington Monthly is Katanji Brown-Jackson was a public defender. Here's why that's a great thing. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine